when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey Feelers, and welcome to episode 74 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me to talk chaos theory and dino DNA is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. And this week, we kick off our Book to Movies Month, taking a look at the 1993 blockbuster Jurassic Park, a film that I think we would both agree hit us right in the feels in a number of ways. But before we do that, Aaron, let's catch up for a little bit. Uh, What have you been up to this week, my friend? Well, first, just let me say I'm super excited. Okay, this theme is awesome. I, (laughs) I, I do not think this will be the last time that we have a theme of Books to Movies Month. I could see this being a reoccurring thing. I mean, heck, maybe we should just do it every September to start the school year off because there are so many adaptations, Patrick. And narrowing this list down to pick the movies, to pick like four or five to cover, mm-hmm. was so difficult. There's there's just so many good ones to talk about. And well, I don't read nearly as much as I used to. In fact, it's almost non-existent, sadly. It's just one of the things that I've had to... I've had to cut uh, with all of my my interests and hobbies and and commitments, but I really enjoy seeing stories that are adapted and changed and seeing what in what way that was accomplished. So, and and what I've what I've learned is I even like going the opposite way now. One of our listeners, uh, Philip Hurd, has had this conversation with me several times about how he will often now specifically wait if he knows uh, a, a movie's coming out that's based on a book that he hasn't read yet. He won't, he will hold off. He won't go read the book first. He'll wait and he'll check it out after the movie. And as I have become more and more and more of a cinephile, I think I'm kind of in that same boat now where I, I, I almost prefer to see the movie first um, before I go read the book or before I see what it was adapted from uh, because I want my movie experience to be the best it can possibly be. And I guess if you're a book lover, maybe you still want the opposite. When I was a book lover, I wanted to read the book first. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the thing is, is that we've, what we've realized about, about art and specifically with books and movies is that in their own worlds, they can both be amazing things, even if they don't necessarily match up. I think that was the big, that's always the big argument when you take a book and you transfer it to film you go, well, this wasn't in the book or this wasn't like the book. And I used to be one of those guys. And to me, unless you're changing the significance of a character's like purpose or you're uh, doing things to, to alter the overall plot, like adding things that don't necessarily need to be added or taking things away that contribute to the story that you're trying to tell, I really don't have a problem with it because I think a filmmaker's job is to tell a story not necessarily to maintain the 100% page-for-page accuracy of the book that he's adapt- he or she is adapting it from. I think that's where the magic of the movies happens, is what's a director's vision for this story? It's why I can really appreciate movies like Miss Peregrine's Home for uh, Peculiar Children, even with the changes that were made in it, because of the fact that the the story itself was was still intact. The characters were uh, were completely fleshed out like I wanted them to be, or at least 
in a way that was specific to, to my personal tastes. And so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of moving away from that and, and kind of giving both their, their own separate worlds of appreciation. That makes perfect sense. And I think that's really great because then you get to enjoy both mediums, you know, to the best possible extent. So mm-hmm. yeah, Absolutely. I, I say all that we have, the, you know, this is eventually going to be a longer discussion for us. I think uh, there's a lot to talk about regarding adaptation and what is involved in it, but I'm just super excited about this and kicking this, this whole month off. And I think we've picked an amazing movie to do that. So real quick, <laughs> before we get to Jurassic Park, I don't want to wait too long. This last week for me has been incredibly busy. Um, these last few weeks of August and early September are always really stressful and, and high intensity for me in my job, my actual work. And then on top of that, I've just been really packed with my schedule. I've been doing a lot of things. Um, and so getting extra time to just relax and, and experience, you know, entertainment hasn't been as much on the forefront as it usually is. The thing that I did do this week is I made a focus to watch as many college football related movies and documentaries as I possibly could, because this was the kickoff of college football season uh, this past week. So one of those ended up being a rare find that where I didn't know the movie existed. And it's a documentary called A Game of Honor. It came out in late 2011. It was published by Showtime. So maybe that's part of why I didn't know about it. It wasn't an ESPN 30 for 30 or anything like that. But what this documentary did is it tells the story of the 2011 Army and Navy football teams. But what it does differently than most documentaries is it doesn't just focus on the football. And so it kicks off with the arrival of their new recruits going to their respective service academies, and it it really shows what it's like right away for them to transition into this military-controlled life. And as a former sailor, as a veteran of the Navy, um, you know, I went through this to some extent. So while, you know, they, they get in a room with the army and they get welcomed and then they're literally given 90 seconds in that room with their parents to say goodbye. They get told over the loudspeaker, you have 90 seconds to say goodbye. And then that's it, right? Parents leave. They are shuffled out through a door and it is boom. They are in boot camp mode essentially. And so I've, I've walked that, that path. And so I could really relate to what that's like for an 18 year old or 19 year old to go through that. And then on top of that, you throw in that these guys are, you know, athletes. These are, they're here to play football on a scholarship. And yet they're going through some of the same exact things that I went through because they're not being treated as superstars like they would at say an Alabama or a Notre Dame or some of these other schools where if you come to play a sport and you're a star, you're, you're special, you know, you get, you get breaks. Well, that's not the case when you go to Navy or uh, army or air force or one of the academies. So we get to start to, to, to learn what it's like for them. And eventually the story focuses more on the upperclassmen and we start to kind of follow them through the journey of this year. And we really get to learn a lot about what 
life and what I guess why why so many people root for these teams as more than for more than football reasons why do we care about the army navy game every year when like this year 2011 that was covered it was a three and nine army team and a five and seven navy team so why are millions upon millions of people tuning in and and you know rabidly picking sides and cheering and watching this game it's not for the football it's because there's something more and this is what that documentary showed me and i was i was just blown away at how well and balanced it did that it um it it just it showed the educational side i mean for those that don't know navy uh the naval academy in annapolis and west point army um they are ivy league education level schools you know you have to be you can't just be an athlete you have to be incredibly smart (laughs) in order to to go to these schools as well um and so these these athletes have to balance that commitment to athletics with their educational commitments. Um, and then they also have to do extra additional trainings where, you know, they're learning their jobs. So there's there's one character, not character, but there's a couple of different, you know, men that are followed where they're um, playing a game on a Saturday. And then a couple days later, they're having to not practice because they're running this marine course to see if they're good enough to become marines you know what i mean and they're like this is very different than the normal way in which athletes are are thought of these are your your you would think that your football players are going to always be the top right but that wasn't the case there are other people in these academies that have trained and are in physically top shape but don't play football, <laughs> but they're there because they want to win that spot to become a Marine and they have, and they have to win it. So it's really, really fascinating. Um, it's very motivating. It's inspiring. There's a lot of stuff in there that is worth seeing the on the field stuff's kind of underwhelming, to be honest. Like it's not, it's not a documentary that you're watching to see awesome football, you know, played <laughs> like you would, uh, maybe a documentary about a team that won a national championship, but man, even the army navy game itself from 2011 that when it when it gets to that point that's covering that the football game takes a back seat to seeing what transpires around the game there's stuff in this documentary about how the game balls get to the stadium things i i had no idea that just made me even more proud to have served so i loved it i thought it was awesome and absolutely worth watching for any college football fan, for anyone who's got someone in their family who served, anybody that's just patriotic, a game of honor, it's a college football documentary, check it out. And as always, we got to say this, but beat Army. <laughs> well, I will, uh, I will echo all of that. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I love the intrigue of the layers of the story and the way you're describing it, that even as I was watching college football this weekend, I was just reminded of, of the fact that I have to kind of step out. I mean, I'm going to admit my age. I'm 38 years old, and I'm looking at these kids, and I have to remind myself these are just kids. These are these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that are playing a game. And then when you couple that with a bigger reason to be at the university that they're at, to be at these academies is just incredible. 
And I love that a documentary is able to kind of capture that, or at least it sounds like it is, to capture those multiple layers using something as common as college football and the interest in that as a base to to tell that story. So um, I'm excited about checking it out. Is it available? It's available streaming, obviously, somewhere. Is it? Well, I watched it on Amazon Prime. They had a, okay. a it, I don't know if you're familiar with Amazon Prime's uh, trials but they have a they do often they'll have like a seven-day trial of showtime or cinemax oh, okay or, okay so they have a seven-day trial of, of showtime that you can you know obviously gotcha. just cancel right after you you start it and that's mm-hmm. how i watched it for free but it's okay. also on showtime if you own or subscribe to showtime okay well very cool thanks for that recommendation sir yeah you you in particular i know are going to really enjoy it and i'm excited to for us to talk about it offline you know once you once you get a chance to see it <laughs> it's football and it's a documentary. And I what think, more you, should, you, say, I think right? you should actually introduce your dad to it as well. Yeah, that may be one that, that he and I watch together. We're slowly building a list of, of things to watch together. Uh, Sing Street is first on the list, but that might make it to number two at some point. So I'll uh, I'll make sure to, if I can, hold off on it until I get to see it with him. But if not, watch it sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Yeah, do it during college yeah. football season. So so what about <laughs> what about you, man? What have you been up to? Well, um, I don't know if I mentioned this online or offline or whatever, but my wife is starting a new job this next week. She's going to be a paraprofessional. I think I talked about that maybe. I don't know if I did or not. But um, anyway, so she's going into the world of education, which is very exciting for her. And she's never been in this kind of, I mean, she's been in school, obviously, as a student, but this will be the first time that she gets to experience it from a teaching standpoint. And my dad recommended, he said, hey, with your, you know, with, with Kay going into the, the educational world, check out this film. And he mentioned this movie from the 1950s called Blackboard Jungle. And it's directed by Richard Brooks. It's from a, a novel by, of the same name by a guy named Evan Hunter. And it stars Glenn Ford, who the only thing I knew him from was he played Pa Kent in the original Superman. That was like the only thing that I knew him from. But then he said it also stars a young Sidney Portier. And I was Ooh. like, well, my, my interest is peak at this point. And I don't really know how to describe it in in. Man, you, you could use the synopsis from IMDb, but if you've seen things like Stand and Deliver or Dangerous Minds or Lean on Me, things like that, it is a 1950s version of those types of stories. It, it's about a man who goes in as an English teacher to this rough neighborhood in New York and attempts to sort of reform the students that he's around or at least try to kind of make it in here. And what's really, I don't want to say eerie, but really interesting is this is a movie from the 50s, and it feels very relevant to today's culture in terms of not just violence in the schools necessarily, although that's a, that's a, a significant point, but also this, this deep desire for a teacher, for an educator to, to make a difference, to impact his students and the beginning of the film starts out with this textual like this caption this like kind of this scrolling thing that says it's a basically it's a good thing to be in the schools of america we're very grateful for that and it's if 
the the captions are reading as if they're talking to you, the audience, saying, even though this is a victi- you know a fictitious work, it has incredible significance in today's culture. And I'm like, what? This is a 1950s thing. Is this what was going on back then? And so as I'm getting into it, it's it's a slow burn. It's a very much a. It starts out with uh, "Rock Around the Clock," the the famous rock and roll "Rock Around the Clock Tonight." That one right there. Mm-hmm. And this movie actually spawned the success of that song. So the, that song's success originated from this film, in terms of the popularity of it, in terms of its widespread whatever. So, and this film is been been called uh, the movie that sparked the rock and roll era wow I, really I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why that is because <laughs> it didn't feel very much like a rock and roll movie but there's a lot of heavy stuff that happens in it it's it's not a and it's for me as a as a as a as a man my age it's hard for me to kind of get my head around the fact that there were quote serious movies back in the day when I know that's the case. I mean, we just reviewed 12 angry men. And so to, to experience a movie like blackboard jungle, having, you know, dealing with issues of racism and judgment and prejudice, all these things that were very much a part of that decade. Um, and probably even earlier it, it was refreshing and interesting and, um, just a lot of different things as I was watching it. I, I kind of want to go back and watch it again to kind of take in some more of the, the dialogue. But it's it's a movie that, I mean, you could, I don't want to tackle on the word, it's important because it is. I mean, it's an important film. I mean, we've said that, I mean, critics say that, and it's we're, we're in that, that time where we're, we see a movie like this and we're like, it's important. And at the same time, it's one that stands out to me as, very unconventional. It's telling a story that is very serious. In fact, I think the um, one of the posters that I saw it, it was tagged as the most startling picture in years, and it looks like somebody's being murdered on the uh, on the wow. poster itself. Like it looks like a like a like a murder mystery film. But I was um, I was I was really really kind of blown away by it. Like I said, it was a little slow at first. But then there were moments that got me hooked. I would say there are even a couple of connecting points that kind of drew me in. And I would I would say if you can if you can uh, get a chance to watch it, go for it. It's about an hour, just under two hours, uh, black and white, nineteen fifties. But Sidney Portier's performance is, I mean, this is a young young Sidney Portier. Yeah. And so to see him kind of as a rookie actor is very very cool at the very least. So if you're a fan of his. Check this out if you can. Where did you watch it? I watched it on Amazon. Oh, okay, good. It's not it's not free. You have to rent it, but okay. But I watched it there. Cool. So, um, well, it sounds like worth uh, checking out. I love the fifties personally, so it's one of my. I'd say it's easily my one or two when it comes to favorite film decades that I've mm. seen so far. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a great decade. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Cool. Hey, real quick before we get into the movie. We want to thank our sponsors, as always, and say we love you, awesome listeners who support us on Patreon. You help us keep the show going, or shows, uh, plural, if we're counting tabletop flicks. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you again. Voting is actually currently open for the September donor pick episode. 
keeping with the theme of books to movies, we are putting the choices out as Watchmen, Life of Pi, DC's animated feature, The Dark Knight Returns, parts one and two. We'll combine them if we do that. The Coen Brothers True Grit remake and Fight Club. Everyone at the $3 a month level and up gets votes. So you can visit patreon.com slash film if you'd like to be one of those special supporters and help us choose our episodes for next month. All right, now it's Jurassic Park time. <laughs> Hold on to your butts, right? <laughs> oh, yes. I wanted to say that at some point. I'm glad I got a chance to say it there. <laughs> well, this is a movie that came out in 1993. So if you have not seen it yet, I encourage you at the very least to watch it for its own merit before you even think about coming back to listen to us. Just It's, it's a movie experience that you need to have. So uh, that being said, we're going to spoil it like always. We always spoil our films because you can't talk about a movie like this without going through significant plot details and characters and all that stuff. So I am I'm very glad to kick us off by saying, Aaron, tell me about your Jurassic Park experience. First time, most recent, whatever you want to. Well, I was, let's see. What was I in 1993? How old were we? Probably 15-ish. Uh, 15-ish? Yeah. yeah. So this was... the. I don't remember my first viewing of it, specifically. Um, I can't pinpoint a memory of, of that exact moment. But what I do know is that after seeing it the first time and falling in love with it, along with the rest of the world at the time when this movie eventually transitions to our local dollar theater, which it's very sad, by the way, I wish those things were still in existence more because Me too. Oh, all the movies I saw as a teenager at the dollar theater, I, I could go nuts these days. It's but the only thing you could afford as a teen, right? You couldn't even at that, even at exactly. that time, five, five bucks, 10 bucks. Was yeah. Really they had expensive. super cheap, cheap day for popcorn and soda on those days. And it was just, it was mm-hmm. a really affordable thing. And I saw Jurassic park on repeat numerous times it's it's still the movie that i've seen the most in a theater i highly doubt that i'll ever supplant that to be honest i just i can't la la land nope la la land la la land doesn't i believe jurassic park i know is a minimum of 12 la la land wow i saw la la land seven times in a theater okay so i i just can't imagine at this point in my life anything being worth (laughs) you know seeing that many times I mean, maybe I, I wasn't expecting to see La La Land seven times so who knows but that's that's how much I loved Jurassic Park I mean it it became the thing the movie the blockbuster for me that made me go wow you know it was my original as a kid it was my Jaws it was my Star Wars and it wasn't because I went into it with this big love of dinosaurs. And frankly, Patrick, I didn't come out of it with a big love of dinosaurs. I wasn't buying dinosaur toys and, you know, having dinosaur sheets on my bed and stuff like that. I just loved the movie. It was a blockbuster and it was everything I ever wanted out of a blockbuster. And so I've watched it, you know, many, many times since then, watched it again recently and it it holds up so well. I was, I'm actually blown away at, how well it held up. I, there were little nuances that I picked up on that I, you know, weren't fresh in my mind when I went into the viewing, 
um, some of the opening scenes in particular around the dig site, some of the stuff that takes place there. I'd kind of forgotten that that even happened because when we think about Jurassic Park, when we talk about Jurassic Park, it's about the park and being in the park and everything that takes place. But there's actually this cool buildup to it that is very important and really sets the stage well. And so this latest viewing, I was able to take note of that and see the world building in place and see the the pieces, the kind of the the little crumbs being laid to the character development that was going to eventually occur. And it just, it really made me respect what Spielberg did with this film so much more than I ever have. I, I love it even more. And it's an absolute all timer for me uh, as I know it is for many, but yeah, I, I, I heart this film. Yeah. I'm the same way. It, 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 it is the, it is the quintessential blockbuster the first time I remember seeing it was believe during the summer. (laughs) I want to say it came out during the summer. I hope it did. Uh, and listeners, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But it, it was this, it, it was the definitive summer blockbuster. And I clearly remember all the marketing that happened afterwards, all the toys and everything that came around to it. You and I, you know, we were in our teens, so we weren't necessarily literally or metaphorically buying into that. But it was the first movie experience, I think, that I remember having since Back to the Future where I felt so engrossed in the the theatrical experience. It's a movie that is made for that big screen. The loud music, the thumping, the, the, the dinosaur groans and all these different things that, that pull you into this world. It, it's what I think is the sweet spot for the summer blockbuster. Like every summer we talk about these, the, the quote summer blockbuster and we, we pick the, the films we think are going to be the big ones, the things that encapsulate what it means to go to the movies and spend way too much money on popcorn and soda and be incredibly entertained. And I think in our, in our circles of, of, of friends and critics and other film lovers, we've been let down over the last several years in one way or the other. And I think it's because we've been spoiled by movies like this that have surprised us, have left us in awe of worlds that we want to visit but can't and wish we could. I, I think in some ways Jurassic World re-hinted at that. Um, I don't think it I don't think it necessarily I, I don't think it, it it was I didn't feel the magic there that I did with Jurassic Park. And I'm not going to get into a comparison of that right now, but I, I want to say that Jurassic Park to me sets the stage. Like it's the standard for, for a summer blockbuster for if you want to go see a movie in the theater, start with Jurassic Park and then move forward. And for Steven Spielberg, he's done a lot of incredible films and, and I love a lot of what he's done, but I think this was a prime for him. I think this was the, the, the period when he was hitting his stride, he'd just come off uh, the last, you know, what, you know, Indiana Jones trilogy. And he was, I mean, he, he was a, obviously an established director and here comes this film um, based on a book that I hadn't read yet. And in fact, I, the first time I read it was maybe a year ago and was incredibly impressed with it. And he brings this world of dinosaurs to his audience and makes us wish that we could go places and see things that 
these characters in the film are actually getting to do. And to me, that's movie magic. That's what I think makes a good, big, over-the-top fun film work. Along and, and it's a film that has thought. It has heart. It has themes that can be talked about. And uh, I'm glad that it was made because it's going to create, I think, a great conversation for us. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and that's why that's why filmmakers should make movies is so we can talk about them, right? Us, yeah, particularly, yeah. specifically. Yeah, just the two of us. Yeah, it's it's really nobody else matters, right? It's just so thanks, us, Stephen. Right? Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. If you're listening, I know you are because you know we've become bigger than Godzilla. But no, I'm kidding. He listens to all <laughs> of our episodes. <laughs> he does. He's probably shaking his head and going, "Jurassic Park, the biggest summer blockbuster." But I made Jaws. What? what? Are you kidding me? And Dan Trachtenberg's like, "What? What about me?" Right? No. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I guess we can both say that we love this film. Like you you did, obviously, and I'm going to go ahead and echo that. One of the things that I wanted to get us into was the the varying, um, you know, we had action, we had, we have great dialogue, we have all these things that make for an entertaining film, but I love the themes that resonate throughout this movie. Watching it as an adult and connecting with those to me, elevates this film beyond just being entertaining, but it's incredibly thought-provoking. The The book does the same thing. This does it, I think, a little bit more in an entertaining fashion, which I think it should. But one of the themes that I thought was very cool was this idea of hope and optimism and how that plays into uh, or echoes from the visuals from the different characters, like like Hammond in particular, and it got me wondering about him in particular. So he's a he's a central character. He's I don't know who the main. I guess Grant would be Grant and Sattler and Malcolm would be the three main characters. But it's it's an ensemble cast, right? But you look at this idea of hope and optimism, and you look at a character like Hammond. And I got to thinking, you know, he seems like a really optimistic guy. But then I started as I watched this this time around, I got to think. You know, what is his end game actually? I mean, is it to create something wonderful for everyone who, who visits the park? Is it to be rich? Is it to be known as the guy who did this great thing? I mean, I, I almost had trouble figuring out, is he a, quote, good guy? And I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just me reading too much into it. What do you think about that? Well, I love movies that aren't defined with good guys and bad guys. And I, I think this one is largely one of those um the the villain is defined in a sense but even the villain of this movie doesn't really get uh, attention in the way that a villain usually does in movies so um for for me hammond in particular i read hammond mostly as the kind of character who just has good intentions but doesn't think about consequences and potential pitfalls and potential results that could not be he's very narrow-minded and he he believe he's he's optimistic to a fault you would say because he he doesn't believe that anything can go wrong he doesn't think that anything could ever go badly and and I believe that he really does 
want it to be something that everyone can experience. He specifically mentions that in a conversation with the lawyer and that awful line that the lawyers <laughs> the lawyer spits back at him about, yeah, we'll have a coupon day, you know? Coupon day. Like, what? Seriously? But like, but in that conversation leading up to that, Hammond is saying, no, I want this to be, this is not meant for the ultra rich. I want everyone to be able to experience this. So I don't view him as someone who is there to make money and and have money mm-hmm. come in. I think as a businessman, any person that is creating something like this needs to have an income from projects in order to fund development and improvement and stuff like that. So I see him as a person that understands that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But he, mm-hmm. Patrick, there are... I would say five or more instances where he specifically utters the words spare no expense in this film. Spare no expense, right. He says that (laughs) over and over and over. It is driven home, which is an awesome dichotomy to something I want to talk about later (laughs) when it comes to greed. It's interesting Mm. how that plays out. But um, yeah, he says spare no expense all the time. I think his goal really is to do something both for the world's enjoyment, but I think like many athletes, uh, entertainers, celebrities, they're, they're similar. They're creating art or, or putting on a performance for the public that Mm -hmm. they want to entertain, but they also get great joy and, pride from the response that they receive and i think he's the same way he he enjoys being the guy that made this park (laughs) right there is a duality that exists in hammond where you could you you can't say he's altruistic because he while he is thinking about getting everyone into the park it's his legacy that's going to be validated by all those people i mean if like the top five percent of the world's population came to jurassic park and the other 95% only heard about it, I mean, his his legacy would be just that. And so I think you're right. I think he is, I think he wants to share this with the world, but there is a bit of ego involved in what he's trying to do. You know, he, I mean, and he's going to extreme measures. I mean, this isn't, this isn't him putting together, uh, I think, just one small thing. Like, I think he mentions earlier in, that the tour, I think it's in that lunch conversation where he talks about the tour is just the first part, you know, in the year or two, we're, we're going to have more attractions and Jurassic world sort of echoes into that. I think there's a lot of kind of throwback, you know, call forwards to that in Jurassic world that there's cool stuff that would eventually happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that he wants more and you're right. He doesn't really see past the tunnel vision that he has and it costs <laughs> in more ways than one. Um, and the big thing that this movie harkens on is this idea of messing with nature. So the basic premise of Jurassic Park is that this dude, with the help of some scientists and some history books and some research, is that they have now basically cloned dinosaurs. They've created dinosaurs. And look, we're living in 2017. Um, there's a lot of technological advances. The fact that I can watch a football game on my phone is, you know, 
not surprising, but at the same time, I have a wow moment every once in a while. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here watching a football game on my phone. So there's a lot of technological advances that we sort of have taken for granted. 93, this guy was saying we can create dinosaurs that have been extinct for years and years and years. And (laughs) I, I think my favorite scene in the entire movie is the lunch conversation just after they've they've landed on the island and have fed mm-hmm. that poor cow to the raptors. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Hammond, he brings Sattler and Grant in as allies, specifically. Like, he calls them in because he needs two people that are going to support this, thinking that they're going to be overwhelmed and in awe of this place, which they are. And they're going to sign off on this park. But by the end of the conversation, and the only person on his side is, quote, the blood-sucking lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> And and then Malcolm, in that conversation later, at some point, utters the famous life uh, finds way. And I think this, the question, should we be messing with nature, is, is one that I think is kind of relevant today. You know, when we talk about things like stem cells and, you know, we, there was cloning going on, you know, the talk of cloning on the back several years ago. But this is a, this is kind of a cool thing to introduce with the world of of dinosaurs you know wrapped up in this idea of a really cool park and you know it brings up that question should we mess with nature is it worth it and i think for a guy like hammond he felt like it was but obviously other people didn't agree well one thing i love about that is the believability of the way it is explained in this film and in this story Crichton was a master storyteller And for anyone that has not experienced Michael Crichton's writing, whether it be Jurassic Park or Sphere or goodness gracious, the list goes on. I mean, he's responsible for so many awesome books and a lot of them have become films and subpar films, but still go see the, go see the, go read the books. I'm sorry. Um, The stories and the worlds that he creates are fantastic. They're just really, really, really good. And this is no exception to that. So the the thing I like is that it is wholly believable to me that we could find a fossilized mosquito and withdraw the blood from it, and it would have dinosaur blood, and we could use that to... Cl- I mean, it, I don't question it even for a second, Patrick. Right, right. And I fully believe that we could add frog DNA to fill in the gaps. And that it mm-hmm. could potentially cause that dinosaur to evolve into something that is, you know, asexual and self-reproductive or whatever. Like, all of it is so believable. And that's what makes this movie incredible to me. Because so many blockbusters, and as we've gone in time, you know, over the decades, it's just gotten worse and worse of in the terms of believability. Because we go for spectacle and mm-hmm. we have to sacrifice <laughs> reality at some point. Yeah. Um, and this one doesn't, in my opinion. So I, I love that. Now, to the question of should we mess with nature, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> my, my personal philosophical views are not ones that we want to necessarily get into. I mean, that's a whole other right. show. That, I, I, I agree. Yeah. And I agree. and I know you and I are probably on the same page anyway. But um, the thing that is great about Jurassic Park and movies like this, and this is where this question to me is what part of why we can call Jurassic Park science fiction Mm -hmm. because it's asking a philosophical 
question about the future Mm -hmm. um, and about something like that. You know, and this, this is, this is also a question that gets asked in all of the movies that we love so much about AI. Should we create artificial, artificial intelligence? And so asking that question, seeing it play out sometimes in good, sometimes in bad is what makes having that conversation like around the water cooler or with friends and family so great. Right. And this is, how do I word this? The dialogue within this particular scene really stood out to me this viewing. And in particular, it was Malcolm's speech. You know, in the past, I've just been entertained by the fact that that Malcolm's character is just hilarious. He has really great one-liners. And I think Jeff Goldblum's portrayal of Ian Malcolm is fantastic. This time around as an adult and kind of trying to pick up on these things, I wanted to read just a, a couple of, of his lines. You know, he says, life won't be contained. Life uh, finds a way. You, know, you have to use the uh. And then... I love how he he really says, no, 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 let, let, let me finish. He goes, the power you have here didn't require any discipline to obtain it. You read what others had done and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. And then he goes on to say, Say dinosaurs had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. Your scientists were so preoccupied to see if they could, they didn't stop to think about if they should. This whole that those five or six lines just elevate the film's quote importance for me because there are so many things that we could pull out from that. This idea that is knowledge, knowing something, is it worth being able to uh pursue based on that knowledge or should we take responsibility and know that things that we begin to understand we shouldn't necessarily take that one step further like is our is our quest for knowledge our quest for taking things to the next you know is progress a good thing you know all these different things that you could bring out and i think the biggest thing that i pulled from this is that when (laughs) he says that you didn't earn it you guys didn't do the hard work because in that hard work, you would have understood the serious amount of consequences. And I love the picture that he paints of that. And then Sadler follows it up when he's, you know, when Hammond's asking her, he says, she says, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? You really can't. These are living creatures that don't know what century they're in and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. And she was actually talking about plant life. These, these poisonous plants that, sit in the lobby and the only reason they're there is because they look pretty. And I just, I love the way that dialogue exposes Hammond, not for being a fraud or being bad, but for giving him the Jiminy Cricket moment that I think he needs because he's thinking, go, 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 spare no expense, spare no expense. And they're like, the expense you're not sparing is going to be the life of your grandchildren. Okay. (laughs) You don't know this yet, but you're about to, get thrown into the dinosaur den and you don't know what you're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I look at that and I go, wow, how in the midst of this crazy action blockbuster that we're going to have, Chris, we haven't gotten into the crazy stuff yet. We're being kind of built up to this moment, these moments where we then question that as much as 
in awe as we are of this this park, is it worth it? Is that awe, is that wonder, is it worth it? And I love that we are being asked to to think about that throughout the film and even in and after and obviously what, 15, 20, 20 years later? <laughs> you know, whenever this is. Uh, you know, 25 years later? Wow. Um, 24 years later. But anyway, cool. I just, I love that dialogue and I love the way that Malcolm sort of becomes the voice of reason. He does. <laughs> and then how, how all these guys actually, uh, which leads to that great comic line the, about the blood sucking. Lawyer. Lawyer. But it's also awesome because he is Malcolm being that character is also the weird eccentric one of the bunch. Mm-hmm. And so right. it's great storytelling and great filmmaking to not give us the conventions that we would expect for mm-hmm. like, we would expect a, a different character to be that voice of reason. And so it's coming from the chaos theory guy. <laughs> and exactly. And- and that's what right. makes it, like you question his credibility a little bit. Exactly. But that's what makes it interesting and entertaining. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, you know, the flip side of that is obviously that what is Hammond saying is, you know, innovation has always had risk. You know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have that cell phone. You can watch the football game on if people hadn't taken risks to discover electricity sure. and people probably died trying to, create and discover electricity. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. there is always an inherent risk to discovery and things like that. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating stuff and it's, it's part of why it makes it so awesome. Yeah. It paints a really wonderful picture of both sides. I think they both get equal billing. And the fact that you mentioned Ian Malcolm's eccentricness makes him entertainingly approachable. Because you could have created this, there could have been this character, Ian Malcolm, who was all this one table scene, you know, all just talk and whatever. And without those moments where he's flirting with Sattler, you know, with the water on her, on her hand, or when, when, <laughs> when, uh, when the lawyer goes into the outhouse and he goes, if you gotta, you know, when you gotta go, you gotta go. I think moments like that, moments of levity, give him approachability as an audience and in a weird way he becomes more important because what sounds like being a Debbie Downer at first turns out to be oh you know what he was the voice of reason you know he wasn't trying to put a damper on anything he was like what you, you, what, what are you doing and uh, it makes me look forward to his role in this um, upcoming Jurassic World sequel I'm, I'm curious to know what that's going to be like how extensive that's going to be but um, but yeah, I, I love that. And the I other really, big, I really sorry, I really hope that he is not just used in a way in which like he's used in Independence Day Resurgence, right? Like mm-hmm. if he's just there to bring the character back and put him in the story and not actually be a meaningful use. If the writers aren't good enough to understand how to use him, it's going to be really disappointing because the thing that made Jurassic World not as good or a lesser film is the characters. Like it, it did not have the character depth and importance of the characters or didn't, they just weren't as good as the ones in Jurassic park. <laughs> and so right. I really hope that bringing him back and his character back, that he can be utilized in a way that will elevate everybody else that are characters in that film and, and get us closer to the Jurassic park quality. I agree. 
I agree. Especially if you're gonna if you're gonna milk this thing, make sure it's a really, really fat cow. Um, that was a weird analogy. So forget I said that. Um, and then feed it to some raptors. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for bringing us back, Aaron White, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the the other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to themes is this idea of the illusion of control, and this is something that's very poignant in the dinner table scene where where Hammond is eating his ice cream and he's talking to Sattler and I I think in just as a side note I love this moment with them because it feels like a father and daughter and the young me didn't necessarily pick up on the fact that they were not related I thought they were father and daughter because of the way that they kind of you know were together or whatever but you know Hammond's eating ice cream and he says creation is an act of sheer will this goes back to what you're talking about that you just you're driven to do this and he goes next time it will be flawless <laughs> and you see Sattler's eyes just go whoa 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 and she follows it up by saying this is still a flea circus because he mentioned earlier that his first big kind of dream thing that he did was build this flea circus and he created this this world that was an illusion it was it was something he and so he responds, he says, I wanted to show them something regarding the park that wasn't an illusion. And then he starts saying, when we have control, and she cuts him off, she goes, you never had control. That's the illusion. I was, I was overwhelmed by the power of this place, but I didn't have enough respect for it. And now it's out now. I mean, can you imagine, Aaron, having something, having a creation, an invention of some kind, that you know is you claim as your own whether it's legitimately yours or not and all of a sudden it gets either taken over or the idea gets too big for you to handle and now you've lost control how that would make you feel as its as its creator i mean i think for me i would feel completely like just well i'd feel completely helpless at, at some point but I, would, I think I would be like Malcolm. I would say next time, next time, next time. Because I feel like his identity is wrapped up in Jurassic Park. I think that this moment really exposes him for the fact that he has to be in control because this is where his identity lives. That's where it is the most concrete is in Jurassic Park. And so the devastation of seeing it just come apart combined with things like you know, his, his grandchildren missing – it's just completely devastating. I felt so bad for him. And, uh, and and this particular conversation really elevated that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I I am very empathetic. I, try, I always get those words confused. I think I'm empathetic to Hammond's character um, in that I understand him. And that's what makes him interesting and is that he's – I too understand, would feel the same way. Like I would want to try again. Now, there's a time and a place, and that's probably not the time to start thinking about it, right? And that's that's more, I think, what Sattler is trying yeah. to get at. But I, I would expect you to try again. Like I said earlier, innovation, ha it has a cost, and he's right. You know, there are things that could be done differently, but that overconfidence is also largely what led to all of this happening. So if there's a villain in this film... It's Dennis Nedry, and by the way, his last name Nedry is an anagram for nerdy. D 
didn't know if you knew that. Um, ah, 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 you didn't say the magic word. Ah, ah, ah. So he's actually what you would consider the villain. And what I like about this is that even the villain is relatable in some ways. Mm. Now, he's so over-the-top annoying that most people are going to not feel like they relate to him. But how many times have we wanted to ask our boss for a raise or not felt like we were being fairly compensated for the work right. that we are doing or the, the things that we are accomplishing. And that's what this boils down to. And where I mentioned earlier about that dichotomy of how, or the irony of uh, Hammond continually saying, spare no expense, spare no expense, spare no expense. We then see him consistently over and over and over telling Dennis, your money problems aren't my issue. I don't mm, care. Yeah. Just go to work. Yeah. So Dennis has, in theory, tried to multiple times make it known that he doesn't feel he's fairly compensated. And Hammond just decides, I'm going to run you into the ground. You're going to do what I need you to do, and you're going to do it for what I pay you. And he trusts that. He has an overconfidence in that and mm-hmm. his belief that, that those requests are just you know going to go away. He's going to just deal with it. Well, I can tell you as a, as a boss, as a, as a manager of, of personnel, you know, people can quit and essentially in some ways that's what Dennis has done. You know, he's, he's quitting, but he's, he's looking now for an out. How can I make this money that I need? Well, I'll steal these dinosaurs. And of course it's innocent to him. You know, he's, Yes, it would probably affect Hammond's business down the road, but it's not like he is a villain in the sense that he wants to unleash hell upon this island to kill people. <laughs> and so that's where the empathy for him kind of, in a way, or the, you know, can, can come. You, you, or the relatability, I guess. I don't really feel empathetic to him, but, you know, I can relate. I can understand what he's doing and why. It's a poor yeah. choice. It's wrong. Um, right. But that, that all rolls up into that illusion of control you're talking about that Hammond thinks he has over this tight knit crew, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's doing this whole, how many people are left in this park trying to run? This is like the biggest tour and most important moment for them. And there's like six people left in the park that are putting this thing on. Yeah. You know what I mean, like <laughs> that there's some ego, like you said earlier to believe that you could pull that off. Yeah. Um, and there's a lack of respect for the dinosaurs as what's his face. Uh, the, the keeper mentions. So yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with you on that one being a huge theme in this one throughout. It's one that with, with Nedry in particular, I think you, I think you felt sympathy for him at some point. Maybe that's the word you're looking for. Cause empathy, I think we'd feel for him and sympathy would be like, yeah, I, I get what you're, what you're experiencing. And in a lot of ways, I say in a lot of ways. In this particular way, Hammond feels like the the idea of of a of a Steve Jobs just leaving people in his wake while he does the next big thing. And we don't get a chance to understand Nedry. We get a chance to understand him enough to say we understand why he's doing what he's doing, but we kind of get a picture of the fact that he feels a little more than just underappreciated <laughs> and not just by Hammond, but by the rest of the people in, in the, uh, in the control room, you know, by, uh, by, I can't remember the other guy's names, but I think it, by the end of this, I, it didn't really matter because I was glad that he got his comeuppance from the Dilophosaur and 
I'll just say this as a side note. I I think Steven Spielberg, you know, hit hit the nail on the head when it says I'm going to make you more scared of other dinosaurs and not just the T-Rex. You know, that's something that I think he he did really well in this film is he he brought importance of other dinosaurs, particularly the Velociraptor, but also the Dilophosaurus to the forefront and made them maybe I mean, they're never going to be T-Rex. Let's just put that out there right now. But the T-Rex is the highlight, like, though. It's the raptors. Even, you're even exactly the whole right. It's about the raptors. It, it really it's, is. It's a, it's a rope-a-dope. A what? It's a rope dope They think you make they make you think that it's gonna be about the T Rex. It's Jurassic Park. Okay. Of course it's gonna be all about the T Rex, but really it's about the Raptors. Yeah. Well that's why you have King of yeah, King of the anyway. I never heard that rope dope though. That's a I'll I'll put pack that one away for whatever. But you uh Wait, you, are you telling me you don't know what rope dope means? I know what no, I do now. So You do? Thanks. What? The the rope dope. It's it's a surprise unexpected no, I, did, I didn't know that i didn't so it's know a it was boxing, called the rope-a-dope. it's a boxing term i believe it's muhammad ali where he you know acts all flashy like he's gonna hit you from one side and then <laughs> whoop hit you from the other side and you don't see it coming that's the rope-a-dope it's a surprise okay okay i didn't know that but i know it now so last week i told you what blocking was I so you can't believe I thought that, you, you're a boxing it. guy like at least a boxing movie guy i'm a rocky guy nowhere in the rocky franchise do i hear the phrase rope-a-dope being used I mean, you could probably describe it that way. It's in La La Land. From... Oh, another boxing movie? No, that's not a boxing movie. Whatever. <laughs> let's talk about anyway, Jaws. Think... Let's talk... <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. I would love to take the next couple of minutes. I, I want to kind of make a Jaws comparison or why I personally realized why I liked Jurassic Park so much. There were three points, three 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 main instances where I felt like this felt like Jaws to me, or it was kind of calling back in a lot of ways. The first thing was the most obvious one, and we just talked about this. We don't actually see T-Rex until, and I looked at it, an hour and three minutes into the movie, okay? Wow. So this rope-a-dope that obviously is true statement uh, plays itself out here, that we, we hear about T-Rex, we can hear T-Rex, and we're sort of hinted at that, but like Jaws, that ominousness of waiting to see this quote main dinosaur is just it it brings that level of anticipation higher and it increases it, increases it, increases it. So finally when we see and it's not even T Rex like busting through the rope or busting through the, the fence. You see the fence actually just kind of break one strand at a time. And then you, you the the first time you see T Rex is him going and you know his face just sort of slowly moving down and then we see him to me that feels a lot like the introduction of jaws or at least how we how we get introduced to jaws we slowly start seeing more and more of him and you mentioned earlier that you know you could think t-rex is the bad the baddie but it's really nedry you know t-rex is just a dinosaur doing dinosaur things and so that way he becomes a little bit more sympathetic especially when we get to the end where he just goes waylay on the raptors and you're like yeah t-rex all right um the other the the second thing is the 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 exposition by these supporting characters muldoon is the is the gamekeeper from from africa that that uh that whose name slipped our minds but he gives us this information about about the raptors about their speed 
um, how he's never run into, you know, he's never faced a creature like these guys. And in a lot of ways, he's a lot like Quint in that he's full of information and he's also a little bit off, or I think at least he'd have to, to take on a job like this. I mean, being a, being a, a, a game warden in Africa, that's a pretty significant thing. Taking a step up and being a game warden to creatures that could basically just eat you in one bite, uh, that's another thing entirely. And uh, so I think a lot of ways his character connects to, to Quince in a way. And then finally, you've got Hammond himself, this optimist that would stop at nothing to, to make this park succeed. And he reminds me a lot of the mayor of Amity Island, you know, even telling Brody, hey, look, it's not a big deal. We haven't seen the shark. It's okay, but we're not going to shut this island down. You know, this is the biggest weekend. It's the biggest moneymaker. We've got to go on. Now, his motive may be a lot more selfish than Hammond's, but that idea of sparing no expense still lives in that character. And so I think a lot of what makes me appreciate Jurassic Park as a film is the fact that I think Spielberg used Jaws as a template. He said, look, here's what was successful about Jaws. Let's bring it in here and craft these characters around this incredible story. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, the book is fairly accurate in terms of how these characters are portrayed. And um, so I didn't see a lot of deviation from there. So Spielberg really had a lot of kind of similarities to work with anyway. And I think for me, seeing how that worked with Jurassic Park is what elevated it for me and why I consider it a five-star film. Absolutely. I completely agree with you 100%. I love the comparisons you're making to Jaws. I think that it absolutely has those in, in spades. The The only thing we're missing is is a, um, what's his name, Muldoon, making a, a nice long speech like Quint <laughs> does about the Indianapolis. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, right. he does give us information in the same way uh, in, you know, or he he gives information um, that is important to the context, um, just like Quint does. So, yeah, I I agree. I mean, for me, Jaws is still a slightly better film, but I this one is so good. <laughs> um, it's it's up there. It, it's definitely up there. And the comparison I think is is warranted. Hey, real quick, I want to correct myself because I don't know what I'm talking about. And so before I get blasted with listener feedback. I defined rope a dope and used it incorrectly. Now I don't know what the heck. So whatever somebody needs to tell me what idiom I was trying to figure out. What what was I trying to say? Because I was thinking of some idiom that meant a surprise. Um, it's or, not a MacGuffin, is it? That can't be the MacGuffin. I don't know. I don't want to sit here no, and try to MacGuffin. figure it out because I don't know. But a rope a dope is when you sit on the ropes and let someone hit you over and over and over to tire them out and then come up, come back at them. That was, that was why it was a boxing term because you would, you would lay up on the ropes and just let them punch you while being in a defensive posture, let the other person get tired and then hit them back. Um, which is not really relevant to the conversation we were having and what I was using it for. So anywho, just wanted to clear that up and we can move on. (laughs) Can I mention a couple of things that that I really liked about this, this film technically? It's your show too, man. You can do whatever you want. I guess it is, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know, my friends have said that I, my mind is losing. I'm losing it, Patrick. I have not been speaking well uh, in my daily life with my my buddies. They've been calling me out for just 
kind of going off the deep end with the things I've been saying lately. So I don't know, maybe I'm getting okay. old and uh, <laughs> just forgetting everything, but um, the soundtrack. So this soundtrack was probably the first one I ever listened to on repeat. It is the first one that I ever felt I could listen to from track one all the way through the end without ceasing, never stopping. Every single piece of it is incredible. I absolutely fell in love with it. It was the the film that got me into other movie scores and seeking them out and wanting to listen to them, you know, outside of the film experience. So, I mean, this John Williams score for me is probably my favorite of his, to be honest. I can not agree with you more because I think this wasn't the first soundtrack I owned, but it was the first soundtrack that I clearly remember saying, I, what I can, I can like name the track titles because I've listened to it so much. Like I can tell you, Oh, that's tree from my bed or that's Jurassic park or welcome to Jurassic park or those things like that. And I think what's, what makes the soundtrack so wonderful is that it feels just as magical as the film itself. And we've talked about how scores elevate a film, how scores work when they feel like they're just part of the film, how they, they're, they're almost, almost not even present because they fit so well. This is a soundtrack that, as we mentioned before as well, I, I can see the scenes as I'm hearing the music. And it's, it's a soundtrack that I could, just, I could only describe as beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of music, a set of music. And it can, it's very contrasting too because you take that, that opening thump and then the, I guess it's maybe a choir that's going, oh, that kind of thing. And then you contrast that with the moment that they're going to the island. And it's like, oh my gosh, how, how different could you get? And there's a lot of feeling that goes into this music. Um, it shouldn't surprise us because it's John Williams. But this is probably one of my favorite John Williams scores. And uh, even above the, you know, the Star Wars trilogy, just because I think it's a complete, it's a complete soundtrack. It it doesn't feel like I can't really describe particularly, but it doesn't feel like it. It's like, oh, this is here and this is here and this is here. It just feels like something that flows very naturally, and that the film itself lives in the soundtrack. So when I listen to it, I'm actually hearing dialogue. I'm seeing visuals, and 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 I think that makes it equally as as important to the film. Yep. Couldn't agree more, man. It's it's amazing. As is the CGI and practical effects that are used in this movie. So yeah. that is something that specifically sets it apart from again the modern day blockbuster. We have gone the route of almost entirely CGI. The thing about the animatronics that are used in this movie is that I felt like they were 100% real. I, my 15-year-old self darn near believed that they had actually found dinosaurs to use to film this film or to make Dino DNA. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, they looked as real as the goat and the cow that I saw. Yeah. So yeah. I just am blown away by that and, and how they could accomplish that feat. It's something that cannot be probably ever done again because it's been done once. And so mm-hmm. to do it again, it would just be doing it as well, 
<laughs> or not, you know what I mean? Like you can't do it really better. I, I truly believe it is the pinnacle of creating a, an animal that doesn't exist and making me believe that it's real. Absolutely. And the fact that they didn't use too much of either, because it was a combination of both. They didn't rely heavily on one or the other. They, the, the visual artist, effects artist knew when to pull back and when to push forward. And it really played itself out because you could really miss that. I mean, it could, it could look a, it could look like a park, like a theme park with, you know, your, your, you know, your, you know, jutting heads and whatnot. And it wasn't, I mean, but it also didn't feel fantastical either. It felt tangible. It felt tactile. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I could reach out. Like for instance, the, one of my favorite moments is when, when Grant is they run across the, the sick triceratops and he's leaning over listening to the triceratops breathe. And you see his, the, just the glee on his face. Like I would be doing that. I would totally be like hugging this thing and just listening to him. Um, and it's just, it's magical. It's, and it's so cool. And I just love the balance. I, I love that scene because he raises up. Like it actually like raises his body up off, you know, yeah. off the ground. It's, it, yeah. The, oh, the joy that that makes me feel just, you believe it's there and it's, and mm -hmm. it's an actual dinosaur. Yeah. The um the the cast performances before we lead into our connecting point I wanted to touch a little bit on the cast performances because this was an ensemble cast there were a lot of really good performances I thought there was great chemistry with 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 most of the characters and I wanted to ask you personally did a character stand out to you did you have a favorite or were there were they all just really good you know this is an interesting example of a movie that the cast is so good because they're inconspicuous because they don't stand out as bad. I I don't know how to word this. I, it, this is not a movie that has Oscar winning performances. So when we, when we say, wow, this cast was incredible. Normally we would think, wow, this is, this is incredible acting. These are Oscar type acting performances. I did not feel that way about any of these characters, but I did feel they were all perfectly <laughs> acted for the character that they we're trying to portray. So in a sense, maybe mm -hmm. they were, you know, but it's just, there's such weird and hard performances to put in a box because the way that, that they are, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense here. Um, you are, they yeah. don't stand out, you know, as, as anything special, but they all work so well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we mentioned this on the, the episode with Andrew that, a film doesn't have to be Oscar worthy to be good. And so I think in the same way, if these guys accomplished what they needed to accomplish, which was make their characters great within the, con the, the confines of this film, that's enough for me. Mm -hmm. You know, none of these characters felt like they didn't belong. They all felt like they were supposed to be there for a reason. And they all acted the way by the end of the film that their characters were supposed to act. None of them felt inconsistent throughout the film. They all felt like, okay, yeah, this is Nedry and this is Hammond and this is Malcolm. Yeah, they were consistent and that was great for me. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I think the one that sticks out the most is Dr. Grant. I just, this viewing, I really keyed in on the, I mentioned this earlier, the, the world building, the setup before we get to Jurassic Park, before we get to the island. I enjoyed his arc. And it all starts there, specifically with the scene 
where he is scaring the little boy and he's got the raptor claw and he's like, you know, he's going to cut you here into your belly and, you know, and then they're going to attack you from the sides, you know, like he's, he's awful. <laughs> I mean, he's like, so you are alive when they start to eat you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like creepy. when I was rewatching that, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this was in that movie. I probably was scared to death as a kid, but, um, it's, it's that moment that then makes it so amazing as you see him transition through these events into a parent like figure and having, you know, the, the push of his girlfriend (laughs) or I don't, I think she's his girlfriend at the time. She's not really his fiance. Is she, is she his fiance yet? They're they're together according to his girlfriend. yeah. Yeah. It's essentially a girlfriend and she's pushing him to, you know, be more kid friendly and, and do these things. And so you contrast that, that moment of him scaring the bejesus out of that kid with (laughs) the moment of him in the trees with, you know, the two kids, the two grandchildren, and they're afraid to go to sleep. And he's like, don't worry, I got this. Like, I'm not going to let anything happen Mm -hmm. to you. I'm not going to go to sleep. I'll just stay awake. And so you see this complete circle and this complete arc for him, or it's not circle, but a complete growth. And, I really enjoy that this time around as, as watching his character. I, I started paying attention, extra attention to him at the beginning this time and just made sure I followed along and didn't miss anything. And so every bit of his character was wonderful for me. And I think he's got to be my favorite. Very cool, man. I didn't even make that connection of his kind of rounded outness with, at the beginning with the, with the kid and then becoming that father figure for, uh, for Hammond's grandchildren. I thought that was fantastic. Very cool point. I, uh, I, I liked, I liked Malcolm and you know, <laughs> I think that's not a spoiler at all because in particularly that scene after, at lunch, he is, um, I liked him before because he was quirky and funny. I liked him this time around because of the fact that he brought up those incredible points and his character was able to say those things, those things so eloquently so yeah, he's he's my favorite in this film, and as you mentioned earlier, I hope that he's not just a throwaway character in it just for, you know, giggles or whatever for this new sequel. I hope he has purpose. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of purpose, we're getting now to our most purposeful moment of the podcast, our connecting points. And if you don't mind, I'd like to lead off with this because, uh, to me, I just I every time I see this scene, this moment, I almost well up. I mean, and I've seen this way. (laughs) So the scene that gets me every time is the moment that Grant and Sattler see the dinosaurs for the first time. And it just so happens that that's the first time that we as an audience get to see the dinosaurs for the first time as well. You know, we get to see the effects or the, the reveal. And I am now at this moment, a participant in this first time discovery. I'm not just watching these guys react to this moment of seeing dinosaurs. I am seeing these dinosaurs because as you mentioned before, we hadn't seen this on the big screen. This is, and at that time, and even, you know, even now the technology or the science fiction, science fact kind of blurred line indicates that this could happen. And so when we get to see that, when you get those visuals and that score combined with Hammond's line, welcome to Jurassic Park, you know, and how he actually pauses, welcome 
to Jurassic Park. Oh, man, I just get the chills. I love it because I am just in it with them. I am now in that Jeep ready to go see what other dinosaurs there are to see. And there's magic in that. that that's that movie magic that I think elevates this film not only as a summer blockbuster but as just a feature film. I mean, that's why I love it so much. I wish – every time I see this movie, I wish there was a park like this. I really, really do. I want to see dinosaurs up close and personal. I want to be able to have research and facts validated like Grant when he says they move in herds. And I love that he goes, they do move in herds. It's like in that moment he's going, that's what I I thought. And it really is. It really is that he actually gets to see the truth of what he's only kind of assumed for however long he's been a paleontologist. It's just wonderful. And I think that Spielberg meant for that to be for us as an audience equally as much as he meant it to be for, for Grant and Sattler. Um, so yeah, that's my connecting point hands down. It's mine as well. Uh, I, I can't help it. I, I agree that there is nothing that is more moving than right then. It is so powerful and it, it, it is an effective sense of wonder and awe that, is hardly matched in film that I can come up with. I mean, there are other moments I'm sure, but I'd be hard pressed to find another, you know, to fill up two hands worth. (laughs) I could probably, you know, 10 of them that are as equally moving as that one. It is so amazing to witness them. And and especially the, the turning of her head, you know, when he first sees the dinosaurs and, and he he's pops up and then she's just sitting there talking and he's like, Oh, nope, you need to, uh, you need to look at this. And you, you know, the camera staying on their faces, not on what they see so that we really are 100% focused on their reaction, I think was just the stroke of, you know, Spielbergian genius because so many other movies would have let us know what they were looking at because it would have tried to say, okay, you know, you need to understand why they're feeling surprised, but instead we get to experience it with them. We get to see it through their eyes. We see their, their shock, right? Because we know there's dinosaurs there as a viewer. Like we have, we have information that they don't. And so we already, we don't need to see those dinosaurs. I don't think. And, and I love that we get to watch them more than Mm -hmm. watch the dinosaurs. I think that's what makes it so, so special for me. And I agree. The other moment that is sort of like that for me though, is also when they first fly into the Island, I get chills when the John Williams score theme hits right as this, the helicopter comes around the corner and you get to see Isla Nublar for the first time. It's this incredibly lush forest. I mean, it is gorgeous. It is amazing. The music pounds and we fly through and then the helicopter just drops straight down and, you know, by a waterfall to park or to land, I guess, and, uh, and let them out. And all of that is like, okay. So this is the level of wonder that I am going to get. This is what I should be expecting now. Um, and it sets the tone and the expectations for everything to come. And that is made so special because we then later realize it completely delivers on that promise. And so, so those are kind of tied together to me as moments where that awe and wonder are most effective in this movie. And I love them both. Uh, almost Fantastic. Equally. Yeah. 
they're they're both really great and it makes leaving Jurassic Park at the very end of the film, not only leaving the film itself, but also like traveling with Hammond and feeling his sort of dismay and his disappointment and his discouragement. I feel that discouragement too, because I wanted it to succeed. I wanted this to happen. And I think that's partly driven by those two moments of introducing us in a way that we have that optimism. We have that, that desire to want this thing to happen. And so at the very end, when it doesn't, when they have to leave reluctantly, it is, it's heartbreaking. And I think maybe what's even more heartbreaking is the sequel that came after that. But, you know, <laughs> we won't necessarily get into that. So <laughs> one day I'm going to, I don't think I've seen them. Honestly, I don't think I've seen two or three. Um, I one day I need yeah. to watch them just because, you know, film education wise, but for sure, for sure. I, the Lost World, I actually want to read the sequel that Crichton wrote. I'm told, though, that he wrote that, I think, for the purpose of having a film to follow it up. So it's sort of driven by by that. Mm. Um, but I've heard I've heard mixed, mixed reviews about it. People say they love it. People say they don't. But anyway, we would like to hear from you guys and what you love or don't love, if there's anything about this film. And uh, we'd love to hear what your connecting point is. If you guys want to chime in, you can do that on social media. We have an active uh, Facebook group that is a great place to start discussion, to jump in on discussion. And uh, we would love to hear what you guys think of this film, where it ranks in terms of like big summer blockbusters, maybe your top five Spielberg movies or whatever. But at the very least, you can find us there, uh, hanging out, talking with each other. You can also... Find me personally. I'm hanging out at uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. So you can hit me up individually on any of those three places. Um, I wanted to, we wanted to give you a quick heads up for next week. We've got a double feature happening. We're doing The Perks of Being a Wallflower as our main episode, uh, written and directed by the author uh, uh no not Noam Chomsky whatever <laughs> I can't remember his first name his last name is Chomsky Norm but anyway that's a Norm is it Norm mm-hmm. yeah Norm Chomsky thank you and also a <sighs> a minisode on <laughs> the <laughs> Stephen King <laughs> adaptation uh uh it <laughs> Patrick can't even get the movie out we're covering <laughs> it everyone you know the movie yeah. that all of you are going to be going to see next weekend yeah we're gonna watch it too and we're gonna talk about it and we're gonna drop that episode concurrently with this one we're not gonna wait uh so we can get that one out right away patrick doesn't (laughs) like horror movies and that's the reason for this reaction you're hearing right now it'll be it'll be uh it'll be a good discussion regardless (laughs) i'm excited it keeps with the theme it's a book to a movie adaptation patrick i will spoiler i'll mention this again in the mini set i'm sure but i have not seen the original it miniseries. So I have intentionally just decided, you know, I'm not going to do that until after this one. So I'm going to get to see this with eyes that a lot of people won't. And I'm excited to compare and contrast that. Good stuff, man. Good stuff, man. Well, what about you? Where can people find you? All over the internet at Aaron L white, A A R O N E L W H I T E Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. You can plug that in and find me in various places. You can also find me tweeting uh, from the Feelin' Film Twitter account. And then, of course, I'm extremely active in our Facebook group, chatting throughout the week as well. If you're interested in board games at all, 
our kind of other podcast, Tabletop Flicks, the last episode that we did was actually on dinosaurs, and we talked about Jurassic Park there too. So episode three of that podcast is out, and we talked about some board games that made us think about Jurassic Park or paired well with an evening where you watch Jurassic Park and then play a game. So we urge you to check that one out. It's got its own Twitter. Its own Twitter. It does have its own Twitter. I meant to say it has its own RSS feed and own podcast uh, <laughs> feed on iTunes and Stitcher and et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully you are listening to Tabletop Flicks. And if you're not into board games, listen to it anyway, because there's a lot of movie talk and maybe it'll get you into board games. I think that a lot of people would really like them if they try them. <laughs> well, you've made me a believer, at least in terms of Codenames Pictures, but that, you know, that was obviously influenced by, you know, the personal touch of having you and your kids with me. So thanks for that. It's because you Appreciate saw her face. And I am a believer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a trace or a doubt in my mind, okay? <laughs> Off the rails we have gone. Patrick, as we always say at the end of our episodes before we get too crazy, stay positive. And keep feeling film. 